So, Parshas Vayetze. Parshas Vayetze. Okay, let's begin. So, what we're gonna, as I mentioned at the first shear, there are times we're going to focus more on what we call Parshanut, which is an approach to a particular story in the Torah, and other times we're going to utilize the Parsha as a jumping-off point to discuss some other, more, I guess, philosophical issue or approach that Rabbi Soloveitchik has. So today, what we're going to do is, based out of his book, it's called, it's actually, I believe, one of the, it was the first or second book that they wrote after he passed away, based on essays he had written. It's called Family Redeemed, Essays on Family Relationships, where he discusses all sorts of, all sorts of things that re- involve fa- philosophy as, a result, as it regards to family. Why uh, this week? So I figured it would be a, co- a good time to discuss it for a number of reasons. This, this week in Parashat Vayetze, we have the, really the formation of the Klal Yisrael, if you want to put it that way. Yaakov's children are born, the Shvatim, the tribes are born in this week's Parsha. So in a way, it's the culmination of Avraham's journey, leaving and being promised a child, and all that, the story that went with that, the story of Avraham, the story then of Yitzhak and Yishmael, the story of Yaakov and Esav, and it culminates again in this week's Parsha, when finally, I guess the realization, if you want to call it, of this dream of there's actually going to be a people. Now there are 12, 12 sons, and each of them are going to have more children, and we see that now it's no longer just Avram alone, but now Avram has a nation. And also, uh, what we see throughout this entire last few parashios, uh, especially, and it's going to come to a close with parashios Vayechi, is not only this familiar story, it's very much circles around a family, but it's also this tension about parenthood itself, and parent, parents struggling to have children, and then struggling to deal with the children that they were given. We have Esav, we have Yishmael, and then of course we have the infighting among the tribes themselves. So using that as a launch pad, as a jumping off point, let's see this, let's read this essay together, let's learn this essay together. It's called Parenthood, Natural and Redeemed, an essay by Rabbi Soloveitchik. So if you look in chapter 30, the first of our sources, we find what may be the most excruciating cry, or perhaps, or one of the most excruciating screams or cries, or pleas, in the Torah, and that is that although we know that Sarah struggled with fertility, and we know that Rivka struggled with fertility, which is, by the way, just an interesting observation, Sarah, we know, there's not much written about it, other than the fact that she had to struggle, a kid was promised, she laughed, it happens. Rivka opens up, we see she's even davening for it. When it comes to Rachel, there's an act of desperation that's going on here. Rachel sees that while her, her sister, Leah, is having child after child, she is left with nothing. She becomes envious, jealous of her sister. So she turns to Yaakov, and what does she say? Give me children. Give me children. If not, I shall die. Or maybe she's saying, if I don't have children, and this is, again, the pain of someone who's, who struggles with infertility, of not knowing, will there be a future? What will the future look like? I'm, I'm effectively dead. What am I if I don't have anyone that comes after me? So this is what Rachel says. What I want to therefore now do, and what the Rabbi Salvechik now does, is kind of, from this story, he zooms out, and he says, let's look at this role, these roles of motherhood and fatherhood. You had a question? Yeah, I'm still stuck on bunnies. Not children. Boys. 
Okay. We'll, 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 let's, let's stay there for now. Okay. We'll stay there for now. He's already had children, so it can't be him. It's got to be her. That's, okay, there are a lot of questions you can ask. And that, what, 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 as I preface, I don't want to get into the Parsha Nut in terms of the actual story. I want to utilize this as, a, a, as a, an opportunity to discuss what he says is the role of parents, uh, mothers, and fathers. Reisalvechik opens his essay. Look, if you look, he says in Bereshah's Gimel, Genesis 3. V'yikra Adam Shem Ishto. This is the story where Adam is, is says he's, Adam is alone in the world. Adam is alone in the world. And God says, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to give you a Azer Konegdo, a wife. Adam goes to sleep. He wakes up. And behold, there's a woman there. And he calls her Chava. What is Chava? What is the etymology of the word Chava? What does the word Chava mean? Where does the name come from? So the Pasuk tells us, Ki aim kol chai. Because Chava is the mother of all that are alive. As in, not only is she, going to, is she just a woman, but she's... Her role as a woman, a woman is going to be the mother of all. Already in her name, we see the symbolism of what and who she's supposed to be. Says Ray Salvatic, it's very interesting because if you look at Adam, what does Adam mean, Adam? No relation to fatherhood. That in the, he calls in the natural world, in the biological world, a woman is identified with her role as a mother. Whereas a father is not so. And in fact, if you think about it, he says, if you look about it, we're going to create these two typologies here. He could say we have the natural world, where that's just the world of pleasure, the world of biology, the world of the animal kingdom, the world of how things can be in their unredeemed state. You have a mother, she can have children, the father's role is totally minimized. What's his role? Not much. He doesn't have to be there. However, in the redeemed world, and he's going to point out, it's not the case. In the redeemed world, it's not just about biology. It's not just about a child being born, but it's about bringing a, chi- bringing a child into something greater, bringing a child into this world, bringing a child into the, as, we did this, as I did this morning, as I witnessed this morning, into the fold, if you will. In fact, the bracha, the, the bracha you make at a bris, lachniso libriso shal avram avinu, we, so we make a bracha at a bris. One of the, we make a couple of brachas. One is you make, as in any time you, you do a mitzvah, you make a bracha, you say, and you ignite, you kindle the candles. At a bris, you say, you make a bracha on the mila, on the, the actual action of the circumcision. And there's a second bracha that's made that's bringing the boy into the covenant of Abraham. And the commentators struggle, when exactly should we place this bracha? Because just like by food, when do we make the bracha before we eat? Oh, I just said it. When do we make the bracha? Prior to eating it. When do we make the bracha when it comes to a mitzvah? Prior to performing the mitzvah. Unless there's some sort of mitigating circumstances, such as when you wash our hands. We only make the bracha afterwards because our hands may be dirty, and we may not be in the state in our, to make the bracha. But generally, we make a bracha. It's called over Prior to the action, we then ask God for permission to engage in, in this mitzvah, to take part from this food. Well then, when do we make the bracha at a bris? So, the one on the mila, alha mila, that's made right before we do the actual circumcision. But when do we make the bracha of lachnizo, labris, or shalab, ravino? What is his name? Not what his name, but it's seemingly after, or either after or in the middle of the circumcision. And the question that they want to find, that the commentators struggle to figure out is, why should that be? And says Tosvos, because this is not a bracha we're making on the actual bris mila. This is not a bracha we're making. Oh, we have to, we have to give a, a bris. So just like when it comes to the, uh, 
um, when it comes to the Megillah, we make two brachos, we make a bracha on the Megillah, the reading, and the Megillah, a bracha also on the nace that occurred. So too, one may think you make two brachas on the bris, one bracha on the milah, on the circumcision, and one bracha also on the circumcision exp- expressing how we also bring this child into the covenant of Abraham. Says Tosos, no, no, no. This is not a bracha on the mitzvah, but it's a bracha that we're making because we're so excited. It's a shevach, a praise, that now we're taking this child and bringing it, bring it into the Jewish people. And now the child is fully part of the Jewish people. So it's not a bracha on the mitzvah, it's a birchat ha-shevach. A bit into the weeds, but would that mean that you can say the, the bracha to bring the child into Pneisa without having done the bris if the bris is delayed for some reason? Or maybe you, maybe you, so maybe you'd say the other way around, and once the birth happens, you can make it later on. That's very, it, it could be. It's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. Shachianu is that way, by the way. Shachianu, although we make a Shachianu in Shul or when we light candles, the, the Gemara tells us you can make a Shachianu any day of Yontif. You can walk in the marketplace. Oh, I didn't make a Shachianu. Make a Shachianu then. But that's right, again, it gets into the weeds. Why am I saying all this? Yeah. I wonder if you're going to use your argument before you wash, you know, make, make a brush before you wash your hands because, like, you're dirty and pure. You could can use the same argument for a bris. You do the bris first in the mouth. In a who's who's making the bracha the bris? Well, not, not the baby itself. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay, so why, wh- where does it take us? So what's the, what, what, what was I trying to say about this? So what Salvation is saying is there are going to be two communities now, if you will. There's the natural community, the one of bi- biology, the one of hedonism, the one of pleasure, the one where, the one where it's, it's, it's natural, it's power-oriented. And this is the one of Chava. Why does she have a child? What's the child about? It's hers. She's a mother. She identifies with the baby. And the father, not in the picture, because again, in, in the natural community, the role of father is pretty much minimized. And then he says we have the covenantal community, the ethical community. We have the redeemed community, where it's not just about bringing a child into the world, but it's bringing a child into the world for a purpose. Bring a child into the world, tachas kan feyashchina. Bring a child into the world, and there's more to it than just biology, hedonism, pleasure, but actually because there's something about this child. So that's how he opens up this essay. And he says as follows. That therefore, if you see, what, where is the transition? Where would the, what marks the transition to the, from the natural community to the redeemed community? Listen to this. We have Adam, no relation to a child. It just means Adam. Chava means the mother of all, all things, again, because a mother can't escape the fact that she's a mother because she spends so much time with the child. For, for nine months, she's with that child. As he says, in the natural community, the woman is more concerned with motherhood than the man with fatherhood. Motherhood, in contrast to fatherhood, bespeaks a long-enduring, peculiar state of body and mind. The nine months of pregnancy, with all its attendant biological and physiological changes, the birth of the, of the child with pain and suffering, the nursing of the baby, and, and later the caretaking of and attending to the youngster, all form part of the motherhood experience. In a word, the woman, and this is the woman in the natural community, is bound up with a child and she experiences her motherhood role in all her thought and feeling. The father, if he wants, can deny his fatherhood and forego his responsibility. The mother is bound up with the child. The father can roam around forgetting everything. Motherhood is an experience, unredeemed and hence brutish, yet it is an experience. Physically, fatherhood implies nothing tangible and memorable. The male bodily and mentally does not experience his fatherhood. So I think it's a, it's, there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. Again, motherhood, it's there. You can't deny it. It's an experience, whereas fatherhood, what's the relation? You fast forward a couple of years, what happens? A man by the name of Avraham is born, 
And one day Avram gets a message from God and he says, you'll no longer be called Avram, but you'll be called Avraham. What's the idea behind the word Avram? You look in the Pasuk, and he says, This is in Genesis 17, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You should be the father of a multitude of nations. And therefore, Suddenly we have a, we have a transition. Adam, no relation to his children if he didn't want. Again, the natural community. Comes along Avraham, introduces the monotheism, introduces Judaism, introduces the redeemed world. And, and what happens to his name? God says, now you will be called, your name Avraham, which means what? The father of many nations. You will now be called in relation to your children, in relation to what comes after you. Just like woman, she, it's undeniable her relationship to her children. She can't get away from it. So too in a redeemed world, the father is the same way. It's not just, oh, you happen to have followed a child, now you go on your way. But no, there's a purpose. There's a meaning. You're redeeming the fatherhood experience. This is, is there a concept that the love of a father is even greater than the love of a mother for a child? This I don't know. This I'd never heard of. This i never heard of. And it's actually interesting, by the way. This, this, this idea that from the perspective of the father, his, 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 his investment, if you will, in becoming a father is so much less than the mother that this is actually reflected in the halacha itself. The halacha itself reflects the fact that a mother goes through an experience, whether she wants to or not, when she becomes a mother, goes through a sacrifice, whether she wants or doesn't, when she becomes a mother, whereas the father is nothing you can get, it can walk away. Now give me, give me a few minutes here. The, the Mishnayas in Yevamos says, the Mishnah in Yevamos says as follows, there is an mitzvah in the Torah, among the many mitzvahs in the Torah, to have children. Pru You should have children, says the Mishnah. A man is obligated to have children. A woman is not obligated to have children. A woman is not obligated, it's only on the man. A woman can opt in to have children. In fact, I think if you look at the nature of the world, it seems to be women more often than not are the ones who want to have children. I mean, men also do, but there's a natural urge for women to be a mother. But the Mishnah says... And this is the way the Ram is going to Paskin, that a man is the one who's obligated in Pru'uruvu, a woman is not obligated to have children. The question is, why not? Why should a woman not be obligated to have a child? Because the risk is for a woman. Okay, and therefore what? Everything woman is risk. Okay, so as Dr. Elliot is saying, this is actually what Rav Meir Simcha Devinsk says. Right? The Ram is again, Isha says Rav Meir Simcha Devinsk. He gives two reasons. I'm going to go with the second reason first. Rav Meir Simcha Devinsk was... Um, an awesome commentator. He wrote something called the Meshachachma, which was an amazing commentary on, on, the, on, the, on the Chumash. He wrote another commentary on the Raman called the Arsameach. So he gives two reasons. The first one I'll say outside is as follows. He says, if, both, if a man is obligated to have children, a man is obligated to have a child, and he marries someone that cannot have a child, well, in the, and she cannot have a child, excuse me, well, in a world that allows for polygamy, he can always marry another woman, right? Yaakov could have married Rachel, and let's just say if things played out a little differently and Rachel couldn't have children, he could go marry his, her sister and have Leah. All is good and well. A woman cannot marry more than one man. That would mess up paternity. We wouldn't know who the father is. A, a woman cannot marry more than one man. So if you were to say a woman has to have children no matter what, so then if it's the man's fault, she would be forced to divorce. Says Rameer Simcha, the Torah is the Torah is a way of 
of nice of niceness. The Torah is the way of pleasantness. The Torah would never force or coerce someone like that to get divorced in order to have children in that in that sense, and therefore that's why a woman's not obligated to have children. Yeah. There was a movie I saw oh, a number of years ago. Uh, man and woman got married. She couldn't have this question. Why would a woman who seems to be the one? Just like her husband, why is she not obligated to have children? Says Rabbi Simcha, this is again, as you were saying, and this is again, and reflected as well by this dichotomy, if you will, that Rabbi Salvechik is saying as follows. He says, It makes a lot of sense, he says. It's not crazy to say a woman is not obligated in procreating. Why? When the Torah says a woman has to, be, uh, has to have children, uh, sorry, the Torah says, we should be fruitful and multiply. That's only regarding men, as in the man has the obligation. Because the ways of the Torah, as we just said, are pleasant, are ways of pleasantness, and the ways of the Torah are, are peaceful. We're not going to force someone to do something they're not able to do. He says, especially, even nowadays, labor and birth is a miracle. But especially back then, when mortality rate for, mother mortality rate for birth was so high, we're not going to tell someone you have to put yourself in a situation where you are going into this, a, a, a situation of pekuach nefesh, of putting your life in danger. That's just not a pleasant thing to say. And because the Torah, undergirding the Torah, is that this concept of the Torah is ways of pleasantness, so there, the Torah is not going to obligate a woman to have children. A man, yes, but not a woman. And, okay, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll pull there. So what, why, why I brought this up is because, as again, the Rav dichotomy, that in the natural world, the, a woman, once she decides to have a child, so then that becomes, again, even if it's unredeemed, it's an experience. She can't get away from it. The, the, the labor... The childbirth itself, the whole, the whole pregnancy is one of uh, an experience, whereas for the man, the decision is not the same. And therefore, and therefore that's why he has the obligation. You know, the, the question would be, I mean, you can't put someone else like in a, in a sarcana, so then, but the, well, you can't put yourself in a sarcana, you can't put someone else in a sarcana. Well, it's, it's, uh, clearly it's enough of that it's, it's, the Torah not only allows it, but it's part of the way the world the world survive, the world goes on. And it's still not enough of us kind of we say it's us, or that no one would say that. But it's, the point is that, and it's probably more than that. The fact that labor is just so painful and such a could be such a hard experience, we're not going to force it on someone if they don't if they opt out. Well, no, but you're, you're still to uh, have, have a child. A man is, and I think it's a natural desire of most people to have children either way. Right. So therefore, I mean, because it's, you know, painful and so on, therefore she's not in the clear, but then... She still wants to. She could, but she's not obligated. Correct. But you're left, but, but the man has no choice in making a woman pregnant. As a, a man has to have children, so he has to find someone who's willing to have children with him. Okay. If you also... She says, no, I don't want to be in a position. So you have to find someone else. To find someone else. Again, before there's a difference between, as we just, as you mentioned before, before marriage and after marriage, but that's a longer discussion. Okay, fine. I don't, I don't want. To, so then, what happens as well? Let's move on. We also find that Sarah herself, 
Sarai, her name changes. The Torah says, They asked for Sarai, your wife. She will now be known as Sarah. Why Sarah? And this is also a transition from Chava being just a, as, we, as the Rav said, the natural mother of all, to Sarai, who's the covenantal, the redeemed mother of all. I will bless this Sarah. Now that she's Sarah, I'll bless her. I'll give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will give rise to nations. Rules of people shall, rule, shall issue from her. As in, that it's not just about what she's going to have, but she's having these children who will become rulers, who will be enter, into, who enter into this religion, enter into this tradition, this Mesora, that they are going to play a, a leading part. So here as well we're seeing that we're moving from a mother having a child because she has a natural desire to have a child, and then the child just becomes, this, this, again, an, an extension of a way for her to experience her love and to give her love over to now you're also you're educating and you're giving over and you're creating rulers and you're creating leaders. So we see again there's a transition that takes place from the natural motherhood to the redeemed motherhood, the natural parenthood to the redeemed parenthood. Yes? Yeah, I It seems that the way the Rabbi Salvation puts it is the letter He was added to both their names, signifying a transformation to universality. God promised Abraham that he would be a father of many nations, and that sorrow which shall give rise to nations, rules of people should be, shall be of her. Sarah replaced Eve, the freely committed universal mother, supplemented the instinctual, involved natural mother. Eve was the mother of all living, Sarah the mother of nations and kings. Eve's motherhood consisted in giving life, in the natural sense, to her child. It lacked, however, the element of leadership. Her motherhood was a result of biological pressure, the consummation of a natural process. Sarah's was due to the great vision, to a new mission she took on. And she and all the persons they had acquired in Haran and her children and pupils formed a covenantal community, one founded on education and living a tradition and commitment. I, I was thought that the hay was added because it's a, it's a letter in God's name. So, and it gave them that... Well, maybe that's part of it, that, they, that, that now they're, they're, they're redeeming the parenthood. Again, take it. What, what the Rav is going what he's, he's driving it is, there's parenthood as... Again, in the, there was a world, there's a natural world, and lots of things happen, but there's a way to take that, live in the natural world, but redeem it, and make it more than just about a biological process, more than just about you have certain biological pressures, or biological desires, or, and again, or psychological desires, but you're taking those and redeeming them, and making them about, I'm taking all that, and use, utilizing it, and using it to have a child to be a leader. As in, when he says leader, not just to be actually to be the president, but to be someone who's part of the tradition, part of the Mesoro. And he says in, but it's more than that, and this is something we've touched upon last year a little, a little bit, is that Ray Salvechik often returns to this point. The, the idea of Kedusha, of sanctity, always comes about through sacrifice. And if you think about it for a moment, what's the greatest item of sanctity we have? A carbon, a sacrifice. There's, there's a relationship there. That's through sacrifice, through sacrifice that we have, that's where you achieve Kedusha. It's through, as we discussed last year, sometimes pulling back, living the halachic life where you're going to stay away from certain things, not going to engage in certain things, that creates an element of Kedusha, of holiness. That's where you can find God. 
And he says, if you think about it, who then has the greatest sanctity here in this relationship? It's going to be Sarah. It's going to be the mother who lives a free life, can do whatever he wants, choose any career she wants, do whatever, really travel the world, and she chooses to tether herself to a child, to make a decision worth effectively for the next who knows how many years. She's now stuck in pretty much one place, and certain career ambitions may not be attainable in the, in the short term or even the long term. And it's interesting, by the way, this is not just something in the, in the, um, in, in the secular sense, but you can talk to many young from religious mothers who talk about the struggle of not being able to go to shul the same amount and connect Hashem the same way that they were able to beforehand. Beforehand, anytime they wanted, they can go to shul and go listen to McGill or go hear the shofar, and suddenly they're a mother now and they're stuck at home. And even if we have groups and we try to make it work, ultimately there's a sacrifice that's involved when you choose to have a child. And that too, it says, it creates this, poten- this tremendous potential for kedusha. For sanctity, for sanctity more than more than the more than the father has. So in this redeemed motherhood or parenthood, especially the motherhood, not only are you moving from a place of of just a biological pressure, as he put it, to a place of purpose and meaning, but also tremendous sanctity and kedusha. And then this next part, this last part, I want to touch on. Which I think is most interesting. Is I didn't totally. I don't get where the point comes from, but his proofs prove the point. If you'll see what I mean by that. He says, oftentimes, in the, in the typology we have in the Chumash, of masculine and feminine, of male and female, the male plays a more prominent role. Avram is sitting outside the tent, welcoming in the guests. Avram, the, the protagonist of most of the biblical stories, is going to be the male. But he says something unbelievable. If you take a moment to think about it, though, when it comes to... Up here. When it comes to, though, the major stories, the moments of crisis, the moments where there's the most tension, it's oftentimes the female that steps in and makes the pivotal decision and the pivotal and makes the, the makes the, the and makes the pivotal decision to affect the change that happens. And if you look through the stories in Tanakh, you see this is true. Strangers into his tent. Who made the sandwiches? Yeah, but that's that's a small. That's small. Let me just. Sorry, I just lost it here. Okay. So if you look, let's just let's just go through a few of the biblical stories, and I'll tell you, and I'll tell you how it goes even beyond that. Take for instance Sarah. Right, Sarah. What's her role? It's it's minimized. She's in the tent. It takes the uh, angels have to ask. Uh, how, how is your wife doing? Which, by the way, the Gemara learns out from that. That's, pro, that's proper protocol in Derek Eretz. Ask how someone's spouse is doing. But then what happens at the moment after the child is born? After Yitzhak is born, he's now in the house, he's weaned, and now Yishmael suddenly starts to have this pernicious influence on Yitzhak. And Avram sees one son I love, one son I love. Okay, one son, he's, he's not really behaving so well. But how, he's my son. He's my son. And it takes the Bini Yaseira, the, the instinct of sorrow, to say to Avraham, this can't work. If you want Yitzhak to be the next of the forefathers, you want Yitzhak to be the next, the, the next, the leader of the Jewish people, you have to do something here. Says God to Avraham, I know you're distressed by what's going on here. 
You're distressed for the fact your wife said you have to send out one of your children, a child who you love, who you raised. But what does God say? Whenever Sarah tells you, do as she says. Suddenly, in the, in the midst of the story of Genesis, where Avram is the protagonist, right? The book isn't Sarah's journey. The book we've been using is Avram's journey. But it's Sarah who steps in there to save the future of the Jewish people. And then we had last week's Parsha. What happened in last week's Parsha? We have the whole switcheroo. We have Yaakov, we have Esav. Esav is supposed to get the brachos. Yaakov's too timid to st- step in and say, really, they belong to me. It takes Rivka to say, no, 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 no. This is, this is rightfully yours. You're supposed to be the heir. Let me get you dressed. Let me bake the food for you and send you to your father. And then what happens? Yaakov comes out and goes, my brother's going to kill me. She says, go to Haran. And that, that, in the end, at the end of history, as they say. He goes to Haran. He meets, his, he meets Rivka. He meets Rachel. The Shvatim are born. Klal Yisrael. As in Yaakov is Yisrael. Comes from that, from that encounter, from that, that decision that, that, that Rivka makes. I mean, in, in, I was thinking about this. This is not found in the text here, but we read in this week's parsha about Rachel herself. Rachel, when she, when she switches the signs and tells Leah that there is a special sign that Yaakov gave to me, because Yaakov knew about the, the, the trickery of my father, of Lavan, and Yaakov is afraid that he would switch me for you, which he did, so he gave me a special sign that I can show him that he knows that I'm the right one. And so not to, as not to embarrass his sister Leah... Rachel goes and gives her the, gives her the sign. Are we familiar with the story? Yep. This is maybe the source for wearing a veil. Probably not. But people have to say that. It happens to be... That's the source for the Dukin, not wearing the veil. Correct. That's going to be one of the sources. Correct. Now, are you ready for this? Says the, says the, says the, uh, the, the Yirmiyahu, Hanavi, that ultimately, he, and Yirmiyahu writes the story out, when the Jewish people are exiled, and God is angry with us, and everyone comes to us. And everyone says, God, don't worry. Jewish people, if you could forgive them. Ultimately, who is it that causes Avraham, causes God, excuse me, to forgive the Jewish people? Mama Rachel. Rachel crying on her children. Rachel crying on her children. That's why we call her Mama Rachel. Which is why, by the way, she's buried on the way. The base Lechem. So when the Jewish people were leaving, were leaving and being exiled, they were able to stop on the rivers of Babylon. And while they wept, they also could dive into Mama Rachel. Rachel becomes the mother of Klal Yisrael, the place where everyone goes for the tefillahs because of this, this situation. So also in her own way, she became the Rachel of Akel Baneha. She's when we turn to because she, in this moment, when she realized, and if you think about it just for a second, she, when she decided to give over the signs, what she effectively thought in her mind as she was sealing the deal, Leah was going to marry Yaakov and she was going to have to marry Asaph. In her mind, that's what's going to happen. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, okay, so now me and Leigh will be married together, and we'll be happily ever after, like a TV show about us, and we'll move to Utah. That wasn't what was happening. I probably should put that recording. That wasn't, that wasn't what was happening. It was, I am giving over what was supposed to be my life, and not just my life, my destiny, the Shvatim, Klal Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, everything, I'm giving it over to Leah, and she can marry him, and I'm going to go left with Esau. That's what she thought. And by the way, to make it even more, even, even more, uh, Profound. If you, if, what happens also, the story with the Dudayim, the story of the flowers. You know what the story? The mandrakes, I think they're called? If you look at this week's parasha, there's a moment where Reuven comes home with these flowers, these Dudayim, and he gives them to Leah. And Rachel says, Can I have the flowers? Now, the flowers, I think they're supposed to symbolize fertility, 
And Leah gets angry at Rachel and says, not only did you steal my husband, you also want to take my flowers. And the question everyone wants to know is, like, steal your husband? No, no, you took Rachel's husband. How, how dare you say that? Yes, when we're angry, we, all, we always say things we regret. But that's outlandish. You took your sister's husband, took her life away from her effectively, and now you're yelling at her, she took it from you? You know what's so powerful about that? Because perhaps what it's showing us is that Rachel never told Leah what happened. That for all Leah knew, she was the one always supposed to marry Yaakov. And when Rachel, and Rachel then came to Leah and must have said, by the way, Yaakov told me, here's some signs I'm supposed to give to you. And that really shows her, her godless, her tzidkas, her righteousness. It wasn't that she said, oh, Leah, you're second class. Yaakov doesn't really want you. But look, our father's going to force this upon us, so I don't want you to be embarrassed in public. Here are signs. She masked it in a way that made it look like Leah was supposed to marry Yaakov the whole time. She held her tongue. She was able to save her embarrassment because Leah thought she was the one supposed to marry Yaakov from the beginning. That's unbelievable. That's why it's Rachel Mavaka Abba now. Yeah, that's a, a, that's a very worthy thing for her to have done. Is that why when we make a blessing and we say, Sarifa Rachel Valeya, we put Rachel's name before Leah? I never even thought about it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. No, I'm just saying it because here Leah had, she was the unloved mother, but she had all these sons, and uh, Rachel gave her the, the, the key word or whatever it was. Right. And because that was what was done, that was the proper thing to do. You see, I, I, I never thought of that. It's, it's, it's an interesting point. It could be. It could be. It really could be. So here again, we have Sarah at the pivotal moment when Yishmael and Yitzchak were at a juncture. One had to go. She told Avram, Yishmael must go. And God said, listen to everything she says. We have Rivko, who... who is the one who facilitates Yaakov taking the blessings and then tells him to go run off to Haran. We have to Kanat. We have Sacharin, excuse me. We have Rachel who gives over the gives over the signs and she becomes Mama Rachel, who holds her hand throughout the long odyssey of our Gullahs, our exile. We have Miriam. Miriam. Again, all we're trying to do is highlight here how it's oftentimes whereas the woman sometimes seems to play the back role and the man plays the front role when it comes to the crisis moments. Rabbi Salvechik says his exact wording is. His exact wording is, give me one second here. The mother in times of crisis assumes the role of her husband's keeper, his guardian, and teacher. In the covenantal community, motherhood is a more, is a more powerful spiritual force than fatherhood. The shy, modest, reserved mother turns into an active personality whenever critical action is called for. Again, I think part of that can be born from the fact there's a more kadusha sanctity there. And we have Miriam. What story is Miriam? So Moshe gets put into this little raft, pushed into the Nile, and who knows what happened to him? But what does Miriam do? She runs after him and hides in the reeds. And then when the daughter of Paro sees this child crying, it's Miriam who suggests, oh, I know of a Jewish mother who can, who can, who can feed the child. It's Miriam again. And let's take it a step further. Are you ready for this? It actually plays out even with the upcoming holiday of Hanukkah and Purim and then Pesach. Next three holidays. The... This is, again, where the halacha comes in. Men and women are all... We have the Torah. That we know. But there are certain mitzvahs that women are not obligated in. Those are mitzvahs that are... Time-bound. Mitzvah is man grama. Although, when you go through all the exceptions, you end up being... It's about seven or eight mitzvahs. 
Machlokas, it's seven or eight. But it's only seven or eight that women are not obligated in, the men are obligated in. That's about, about just when, when push comes to shove. So, there are seven time-bound mitzvahs that a woman is not obligated in. The Gemara asks the following question. A woman is obligated to hear Megillah. Well, Megillah is time-bound. It's once a year. Once at night, and then once again in the day. A woman is obligated in Arbacosis on Pesach. By the way, a woman is also obligated in, in, in Matzah. Why is a woman obligated in matzah? Time bound. So this is just another example of why it's only six or seven. Because in the, the Gemara said anyone who's and anyone who's obligated not to eat chametz is now obligated also to eat, to, to eat matzah. So that's just an exception. A woman is obligated in arbakosos. A woman is obligated as well in Hanukkah. The question is why. So look what the Gemara says. Why? If a Hanukkah again, it's eight days and that's it. Not the whole year. Not a constant mitzvah. Arbakosos is four cups. Once a year, one night a year. In Golas, two nights a year. Megillah, one night a year, and then once more during the day. What's going on here? Time bound, says the, says the Gemara in three different places. One found in Masechus Megillah, talking about the mitzvah of? Masechus Megillah, talking about the mitzvah of? Yeah. Megillah, very good. One to be found in Masechus Pesach, talking about the mitzvah of? Pesach. And one found in Masechus Shabbos, talking about the mitzvah of? Hanukkah. Okay, says the, says the Gemara. Why is it Noshim Chayavis Mikra Megillah? Why in the world is a woman obligated to go and hear the Megillah? After all, it's a time-bound mitzvah. Sha'av Hain Hayub Osa Hanes. Because women as well were part of the miracle of Purim. Omar Yeshu and Levi says the Gemara Msachim. Noshim Chayavis Barabakos Halalo. Women are obligated in the four, <coughs> excuse me, in the four cups of the Seder. Why? It's a time-bound mitzvah. They too were involved. They too were involved in the miracle. Comes along Gemara and Shabbos. I'm Rabbi Levi. Third time. Third time's the charm, as they say. The woman is obligated to kindle the light of the menorah. Why? Time by mitzvah because they too were involved in the miracle. Now you ask the question. Well, they were involved in lots of miracles. Why? What's, why are we using this principle only here? What's going on here? And listen to what the Rashbam says. Shabbat is Shmuel ben Meir. He was a grandson of Rashi, of Shlomi Yitzhaki. So he's also a French rabbi. Listen to what he says. What does it mean that they too, what does it mean they too were involved in this? You're going to hear this. Ready for this? It's unbelievable. To Omar, said the Gemara and Sota, it's not they weren't just involved in the Nase, but it was because of them that the Nase occurred. Because of them, the Nase of the Exodus occurred. Because of them, the miracle of Purim occurred, and because of them, the miracle of Hanukkah occurred. Listen to what he says. It was only because of the righteous woman of the generation of the Exodus that we were redeemed. Like Mark elsewhere goes into the, the, the story there that the men no longer want to have children. They, want, they said that it's over, we're slaves, and the woman convinced them to have children. Because of the righteous woman. Because of the righteous cries of the woman. The Chayin got Megillah. Right? What happened to Megillah? Why did the story of Megillah happen? Who was it? Esther. Esther. Very good. The, even her, by the way, okay, we'll leave that. Also, Hanukkah, what's the story with Hanukkah? So there are a couple interpretations that happen here. One is the story of Yehudas. That's probably the main one, Yehudas, where Yehudas is a very similar story to Sancheirev. Yehudas was a, a woman. This is brought down, I believe, also in the book of Maccabees. I believe. But Yehudas was a woman who seduces one of the Greek generals and kills him. Yes, cuts off his head. Put it on a pike too. But, well, they put it on a pike for her. Yes, put it on a platter. Very good. So, because, so, this is fascinating. What am I driving at? 
that we see, as the Rabbi Salvatius said, that when it comes to moments of crisis, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Miriam, the Nashim Sikonios, Esther, it was because of the righteous woman. That's, they, that's where they stepped in. That's where they played the pivotal role. That's where suddenly they burst forth and they start taking a more active role, not just sitting behind the scenes, but they're actually the cause of it. They are playing a pivotal role in our history in creating and forming us as a nation. And forming us as a nation. Says the... Um, and, you know, and if you think about it for a moment, that's what Eish Yishchayel is. When we say Eish Yishchayel, end of Mishlei, or on Friday night, we say Eish Yishchayel, we say Eish Yishchayel Yimsa, where can you find the woman of valor? One who her husband trusts. I think it's the same idea. It's, it's the idea that, the husband, that whereas sometimes the husband may seem to play a more active role, I guess in, the, in this typology, but suddenly when it comes to the moments of crisis, when the moments of valor, that's where she steps in as well. And lastly, once we're on this, uh, I should put numbers on here. There we go. What were, we, what were we doing with time? Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll put it on there. Okay, fine. It says Ray Salavitchi as follows. The book of Proverbs, as initially dedicates its last section of, to the woman of valor, to whom the heart of her husband trusts. Valor as a trait of the feminine personality was born in the covenantal community, where motherhood, instead of being a factum, became a challenge and an ideal. So, so to bring it all back together, that we opened up talking about how there was almost like a brutish quality in the unredeemed, in the natural process of, of parenthood. You have two people, they create a child, the mother is stuck with the child, she can't not deny it, she's Chava, the mother of all living, the father can do what he wants. But through an active decision of redeeming it, of saying that we're not just having a child, we're bringing it we're bringing this child into the world for a purpose, for a reason. Suddenly, you have Sarah, you have Avraham, the father of many nations. He says, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here all along. And you have the mother who says, I'm going, to, I'm going to take this child, not just for my own pleasure, for my own desire, but I'm doing this so that they can be a leader. And then that leads to sacrifice. That leads to the sacrifice, again, of the very fact that she becomes a mother. She's saying that certain things I may have wanted in life, I'm not going to have. But also, and this is something I, we didn't have time to touch upon. I'm sorry I came a little late. You can blame the baby for that. Um, but also, the um, Rishabhiji talks about the, the almost as a, a certain almost not pain but longing when the mother brings the child to school for the, for the first time. We find the story with Chana, which we read about recently. If Chana has a child, she needed, she desperately wanted a child. She said, "If you give me a child, God, I'll, I'll dedicate him to God." And what does she do? She takes this little young Shmuel, brings him to the base of Migdash to be brought up there. That there's a sacrifice there as well. That you say, although the child is all that the mother wants, the child is tethered to the mother. But at the same time, the mother, in a way, pushes the child away and says that you're part of this Mesorah. You need to be educated. We're going to send you to Yeshiva. We're going to send you somewhere else. And that, too, is part of the sacrifice, which, born out of that, comes a tremendous sanctity, a tremendous Kedusha. And lastly, we see that part of that Kedusha then gives the mother, or seems to be part of that as well, is the, the, the feminine role that the mother suddenly bursts forth in moments of crisis that allows for, and again, these pivotal moments that allows ultimately for us as a people to emerge, whether it was the story of, of Sarah, the story of Rivka, the story of Rachel, the story of Miriam, or the many myriads of women in, during the Exodus story that was because of their zechus that we were ultimately redeemed. Good question, Rabbi. Wait, 